Last week, we looked at destructive speech um, out of the book of Proverbs, and we're going to be in Proverbs for a while. Today, we're going to consider another negative motive for speech, and that's speech that's designed to divide, speech that is de- designed to divide. Now, to put this To understand it, we need to properly frame our study this morning. So I want to share four axiomatic principles or self-evident or um, undeniable principles about peace and unity. And we're just going to jump right in. So number one here, we we were created for community. We were created for community. If you remember in Genesis, when God looked at man that he had created to take care of the rest of his creation, he said in the second chapter there, it's not good for man to be alone. So God invented marriage and and the family, and we can follow the biblical account through the scriptures there and see how families turned into tribes and then how God chose to make one family into a great nation, and that's about Genesis 22, I think, um, through which he would bless all nations. We can follow that. And then God gave his law to the Israelites, through, and through that law, he revealed to all men everywhere his nature and his plan for the redemption of mankind. That's what he did. And then, just at the right time, God established his church, his eternal family. So that's kind of real fast um, whirlwind um, uh, version of from the beginning of time to now. And then the church, it was kind of to be a colony of heaven on earth, kind of a taste of the eternal um, community that we will share in heaven one day. So his church, you and I are the church, so his church is now the sheep of his fold or the branches of his vine or the members of his body, the adopted children of his forever family. That's who we are. And just as God lives in sweet harmony and fellowship with the Trinity, he's called you and I to live in rich harmony and fellowship with one another. Now, with that said, principle number two says, unity and peace are not always God's will for us in this world. Unity and peace are not always God's will for us in this world. You'll notice in Ecclesiastes, the third chapter, in verse 8, it says there's a time for war. And then in Matthew, the 10th chapter, in verse 34 through 36, Jesus said, Do not think that I come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Didn't know that verse was in there, did you? It's like, that's kind of rough. But understand this. It's not that Jesus wants us fighting in our families. Not at all. Because the scripture says in the 12th chapter of Romans, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. But folks, you and I both know um, the decision to follow Jesus will cause you to embrace goals and values that will bring you into direct conflict 
with worldly people. When we follow Jesus, we will be in direct conflict with worldly people. You'll be accused of antiquated or an intolerant thinking. You'll be accused of all kinds of things if you follow Jesus. Jesus told his disciples in John the 16th chapter in verse 33, in this world, you will have trouble. And then Paul said in 2 Timothy, the third chapter, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So here's the bottom line. James, the third chapter in verse 17. Powerful verse here. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. See, Christ followers, you and, you and me, those who follow Jesus Christ, we will always love and pursue peace. But we won't go along to get along. We don't ignore facts. We don't shrink from needed confrontation. And we don't compromise the truth. And since wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, you can't have real peace without doctrine, doctrinal and moral purity. You can't have it. Now listen, if we keep growing in our knowledge of God and God's Word, we're going to discover that maybe some things that we were taught or we've been brought up always to believe aren't true. You know, someday on some issue... We're going to say, you know, the Bible really doesn't say what I thought it said over this issue because we learn. We're going to kind of be like Apollos in, in Acts, the 18th chapter. You know, like Apollos, we will learn the way of God more accurately. In other words, we will mature. We will grow. There's things we've learned in our past. We have to say, you know what? I can't find that in the Bible. So we grow and we mature. And just like Apollos did, we too will have to make some changes in both theology and our practice to better align ourselves with the truth of God's unchanging word. In other words, we'll have to make changes to fit into God's plan here. And folks, we don't change the clear meaning of words or evolve our theology in order to be politically correct you know, to just to receive the praise and the approval of men. We don't do that. That's not peace. That's appeasement. And that's not harmony. It's hypocrisy. Now, the truth is, most things that Christians divide over are not doctrinal. In most cases, most divisions are about trivial matters or personal opinion and preferences. You know, I've seen some... Churches go at each other or groups or organizations go at each other over what color to paint the bathroom. Who cares? If it works, that's all we care about. But we will divide over the craziest, stupidest things. And folks, to divide the body over the body of Christ over such things, that's just shameful. But unity and peace are not always God's will for his children in this world. But now with that said, axiom number three, our unity and peace is the Lord's ardent desire 
Our unity and peace is the Lord's ardent desire. In John, the 17th chapter, verse 21 through 23, in Jesus' last moments of freedom, Jesus prayed to his Father that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. You see, our unity was the Lord's last concern. Folks, we got to get that one right. That's just one we've got to get right. And then number four, you know that true spiritual unity is always pleasant. In Psalms 133rd chapter and verse one, it says, behold how good and how pleasant it is for believers to dwell together in unity. Now, with that background information, now we're ready to start the sermon. But we had to get on the same page there. You know, when asked about their greatest desires for life, regardless of what gender or what age or economics or education or religion, almost everyone, everywhere, every time would put harmonious relationships either near or at the top of their list. It was somewhere really close to the top. And it's safe to say that you and I, we all want to experience deep intimacy in our marriage and our family. You know, people join churches or they join uh, civic groups in part because they know there's a blessing in being connected to other people. There's a blessing when we fellowship one with another and we do it like God asks us to. There's blessing in that. We want to live in a, in a friendly, peaceful neighborhood and work in environments where everyone can, you know, contributes to what we hope will be a peaceful and prosperous nation. And regardless of their politics, in every survey, the vast majority of Americans consistently say our greatest desire for our government officials is they would behave more cordially toward each other and they would work together to solve problems. And with the exception of a few clearly broken people, we all share this goal for peace and unity. I think we can say that. You see, at creation, God embedded this very godlike desire into our DNA of our eternal souls. But unfortunately, embedded in the sin nature and as members of this rebellious and fallen humanity we live in, you know, we're also, we also have a capacity with just a few words to sabotage the very peace and harmony that we strive for. Here's a small sample of Proverbs alongside of a New Testament verses about speech motivated by a desire to divide people. In Proverbs 10.10, 10, he who winks the eye causes trouble, 
Now, wink indicates malicious intent. You know, I say this, but you know I'm thinking about something else. That's what that wink is for. Understand that disingenuous, flattering speech, it causes trouble, and it causes trouble every time. And then verse 10 continues, a babbling fool will be ruined. Now, for babbling, the King James used the word pratting or prating. I don't know which way you say it, but I've never heard that word. This is new for me. It's a word, basically, um, it means to chatter idly, or it's a lengthy discourse of empty words. I know some of you are thinking, well, preacher, you do that every week, so we know the word that we can call you now. You know, um, but Proverbs 10, it warns about those who don't say what they really mean, you know, and those who chatter on about trivial things. There's a big warning here in, in Proverbs 10, I'd encourage you to read that. And you have if you've been reading through a verse, or I mean a chapter um, a day. You've gotten that far. Proverbs 10 warns about those who say those things, and we need to heed that. We need to take warning of that. Now the New Testament, it also warns of danger posed to the church by divisive babblers. In 2 Timothy, the second chapter in verses 16 and 17, it says... Avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. And then Titus, the first chapter, verses 10 and 11. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. And in Proverbs 25, verse 23, the north wind brings forth rain and a backbiting tongue and angry countenance. And in Proverbs 18, and verse 6, a fool's lips bring strife. Proverbs 21 and 20, uh, 19, it is better to live in the desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. Now, I really could say something about that, but I don't need to hear any men say amen because you'll be in trouble. Now, in Titus, the, ninth, uh, the third chapter in verse 9 um, through 11, Paul said, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, strife, and disputes for the, about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a, a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. And then in Proverbs 26 and verse 17, it warns, like one who takes a dog by the ears is he who passes by and meddles with strife not belonging to him. Folks, here are some categories of divisive speech. The verses that we just read there warn us against disingenuous flattering, idle babbling, malicious slandering, pointless arguing, and foolish meddling, but that's just the beginning. 32 times the Bible specifically warns us about grumbling or murmuring against spiritual leaders over and over. You know, if you read the Old Testament over and over, and, and especially the book of Exodus, you know, you'll, it says, so, you know, so the people grumbled at Moses. You know, they're ungrateful. They're selfish and critical spirit 
caused them to constantly complain and murmur, resulting in just an ugly and divisive spirit among God's people. Folks, if you study the story of the history of Israel in the wilderness, you'll find that nothing made God angrier with His own people than their constant fault-finding and murmuring. God was very displeased with all that. And the New Testament, it warns us that the same kinds of people will invade the church. And that's something that we need to be aware of. Verse 16 of, of Jude says this, These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. And of course, the Scripture repeatedly condemns gossiping. We know that. In Proverbs 26 and verse 20, Solomon said, For lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisper, contention quites down. Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to a fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 13, Paul writes, They go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. See, my point is this. There are many kinds of speech that's designed to fracture relationships and undermine community or the groups that we're with. Which brings us to ask this question. What are the causes or motives of divisive words? Well, you can look through the scripture and you can make your own list because the, it goes on and on. There's many examples. But kind of right at the top of all of those examples, it seems like there's five that stays right close to the top here. And the number one is, you know, I'm going to say selfishness occasionally motivates us all to say divisive things. Selfishness. You know, whether it's in our homes or whether it's in our churches or civics clubs or sports teams or offices or wherever, you see, we all have our personal preferences and our comfort zones, don't we? And when de the decisions of others or uncontrollable circumstances force us to make a change or to try something new and step out of our comfort zone, we're all tempted to resist with some divisive speech because we don't like change. We don't like to step out of our comfort zone. You know, here is something that I've learned over the years, and I should have printed it in the outline there, but all unity in a church or in a marriage comes because someone makes the courageous decision to serve the other. That's how unity works. Usually, number two, usually divisive words are in part motivated by pride. You know, all of us sometimes are guilty of making the arrogant presumption that what we think is right or best, and it's always right or best for the other person too. You know, we, we kind of think that sometimes. And too often we don't listen to what others know or feel and believe. And too often we don't listen to what God has already said in His Word. You see, now here's a profound statement 
See, none of us knows what we don't know. <laughs> none of us knows what we don't know. So all of us must learn to walk humbly before the Lord. All of us. You know, there's a reason that God gave us two ears and one mouth. And why James says in 119, be quick to hear and slow to speak. You know, we're warned about that. Number three, divisive words usually reflect an unloving heart. Divisive words usually reflect an unloving heart. Invariably, that selfish, rebellious spirit which causes division, it will manifest itself in an unloving disrespect toward others and especially toward those that's re, you know that are responsible to lead. You know, often they're unfairly they 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 project onto a leader their bitterness and pain, you know, that was inflicted upon them by some leader in the past. You know, they kind of bring it forward. Because they were hurt by some leader in the in, in the in the past, it causes them to not like or to trust any leader. And they just they spew that poison to the new leader. Sometimes people are unloving, even hateful at times because they are jealous of the respect and the influence someone is receiving from the group. And even though it's illogical, it's very common for us to see people actively working to derail whole families or churches or a whole work team because of a personal issue they may have with the leader or another member of the group. Folks, hear this. Where people truly love one another the way God has called us to love one another, you see the forgiveness and the healing and the reconciliation that lead to respect and trust and harmony and peace. Amen? Number four, sometimes people say divisive things because they have a secret agenda. Folks, they are the winkers. Those are the ones that are doing the winking here. Folks, it is rarely wrong to express honest concerns or to articulate articulate sincere differences of opinion. But how you do that and why you do that and the sensitivity that you show to maintain your own values and, and relationships as you do that will determine whether you're a valuable member of your family or your team or your church or whether you're just a problem that must be corrected or removed. Sometimes how we go about something is a big deal. You see, people should never, ever have to guess about why Christians believe and do things. Because we're called to live our lives with an uncommon transparency. We're called to give straight answers. We're called to always speak the truth in love. Here's number five. You know, motive for divisive speech that we need to acknowledge. And actually, it's kind of amazing 
that how many today speak divisive words out of habit? I think all of you know those who seem to unconsciously work against the groups to which they profess loyalty to. You know, they do it because that's just who they are and that's what they do. And maybe you've heard that. Well, that's just who I am. That's what I do. You know, some people just have to have drama in their lives. You know, and where there's no controversy, they create it. If things are going smoothly, it seems like they are compelled to just throw a wrench into the machinery. Some just can't stand peace and unity. They are habitual contrarians. Contrarians, is that a word? If it's not, it should be. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Now often, these people, they will self-justify saying, well, I'm just playing the devil's advocate. The problem is, they often actually are the devil's advocate. You see. You know, it doesn't matter what the issue is. They're just against it. If it's new, if it's different, if it wasn't their idea, and sometimes even if it was their idea, they actively undermine their own leaders and their projects and the teams and people they're working with. I know... In the sports world, and you've seen this, you've seen it on TV. In the sports world, we often see incredible athletes um, who through their unique skills have the ability to make an average team into a championship team. We've, we've seen that. But they habitually say things that divide and distract and dis, uh, disrupt the focus of their team. And some people habitually do the same thing where they work. They do it at their home with their spouse and with their children. And some people, they do it in the church. And friends, with all the love that I can, uh, I can say, let me say this. Eventually, if they don't break that bad habit of divisive speech, everyone at work and everyone at home and everyone in the church, you know, they're going to come to the point and say, you know, no matter how good they are on their good day, we just can't be and do what God wants us to be and do. So we don't need them on our, on our team. Eventually, they will push you out. See, so for your own good, if you're one that's involved in divisive speech, think twice. Now, if you go to Philippians, we're going to close this message. Go to Philippians, the second chapter, and verses 1 through 15 we're going to use. And this will be the conclusion. I want to give you the cure for divisive speech right here. Number one, we must be motivated by uncommon gratitude. Paul said in the first and second verses there, therefore, if any, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, Make my joy complete by being the, of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Folks, our commitment to unity, especially within the body of Christ, it begins with a great appreciation for all the encouragement, love, and fellowship we have 
because of who Christ is and what he's done for us. Amen? Number two, we must be committed to active selflessness. Third and fourth verse. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Then number three, we must practice diligent followship. Notice I didn't say fellowship, but followship here. Philippians, again, verses five through eight. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And those who follow Jesus in obedience, Paul concludes in verse 12 through 15, So then, my beloved, just as you were always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, we don't have to fight this battle alone. God is working in us not only to help us to do the right thing, but to want to do the right thing. So verses 14 and 15, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights of the world. And isn't that exactly what we're supposed to be? Lights of the world to shine for Jesus? Folks, here's what we must understand and remember. In Luke 6, Verse 45, Jesus said, The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. And then in Matthew 15, verse 18, he said, But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. Folks, the bottom line is this. The cure for our mouths is to fix our hearts. The cure for our mouths is to fix our hearts. You know, you can put a muzzle on your mouth, but you're just treating the symptom, not the cause. You know, for us to try to fix this in our own power, uh, to control our mouth, is like trying to put a Band-Aid on cancer. You know, it doesn't work. The problem that really defies us is what's in our hearts. So we all need a new heart. And only Jesus can give us that. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, again, we want to thank you for your words of wisdom. Father, thank you for helping us to see how powerful our mouths are, either for the good or for the bad. Father, help us to work on training our mouths to be for the good. Help us to change our hearts 
so that that's what spews out of our mouth is good things. In Jesus' name, amen.